from Alper in the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is our managing editor, recently back from some manner of Northwestern journey, Dave Cameron. And a large part of the discussion which is to follow concerns the latest installment in Dave Cameron's annual Trade Value series, the first post of which series Cameron has published this Monday afternoon. Cameron discusses some of the changes he's made to his methodology for this year's list as opposed to those from previous years, discusses what variables have received greater weight in which he is now considering perhaps less important to assessing trade value. We also look at some particulars insofar as some free agents-to-be are concerned in this present edition of the Trade Value series. Of course, Zach Grinke and Cole Hamels are names of note. They are being sought after by contending teams for possible trades before the July 31st deadline. Another player whose name has been involved in a number of trade talks is Justin Upton. Justin Upton, of course, is a player that Cameron ranked fifth on last year's Trade Value list. What sort of package would a team need to assemble to acquire a player of Upton's caliber? Also in this episode of the podcast, we discuss how the Nats will and or ought to use Steven Strasburg as the playoffs loom, and finally what the Pirates' strategy is likely to be as the trade deadline approaches. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Uh oh! It looks like he's also learned something from his trade value series of 2011. Uh, learned a few things. Larry. You did. What did you learn, uh, Dave Karen? Uh, besides the fact that I guess you didn't learn one thing. You didn't learn is that you should never do it again. Right. Didn't learn that. Uh, yeah. I, I think one of the, this is one of the lists that's enjoyable. Like the organizational rankings. I don't know if people like them or not. They certainly seem to like yelling at us. This one seems to be received a little bit better. I'm mean, obviously there's all these disagreements. People are gonna, you know, last year was Madison Bumgarner who got Giants fans up in arms. There's always gonna be somebody who gets left off who people freak out about. Uh, but overall, I think this list seems to be fairly well received. Uh, the idea, I think, is good. You know, people, it's something they enjoy discussing. We tie it close to the trade deadlines, but, you know, it's kind of, uh, current in the news of people talking about who has what kind of trade value, so, um, you know, I think this is something people enjoy. Hopefully I'm not wrong. But, uh, you know, uh, I think this is something people like reading. Now, last year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one thing that was different about last year's list, the 2011 list, uh, was you'd sort of, I think you'd, you began to think a little bit differently about pitchers. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely uh, we know that pitchers age poorly <laughs> compared to hitters, and there's a huge attrition risk. Um, and so last year I tried to reflect that a little bit, um, but even still, you can look at the list, and even though there aren't a lot of pitchers near the top of the list, there's you know uh, a lot of flame out uh, pretty pretty often uh, on the list. I mean, you look at Tommy Hansen was ranked I think 23rd, and obviously Tim Lincecum and Baldo Jimenez. I mean, there's a lot of guys who aren't on the list this year who were ranked very highly last year. Um, you know, I think some of the pitchers who um, you know, kind of hung out in that teams area, the Verlanders and the Weavers and the Felixes, the, the premium pitchers, they've held their value a little bit better. And so one of the things, is a little bit of a takeaway, I would say, is, um, you know, if we don't know exactly which pitchers are going to age, maybe just get the best one you can and hope he doesn't fall apart. Yeah, and I guess that would work if you if you had a, a Verlander or 
uh, Felix Hernandez. I mean, maybe less so, though, if you had uh, signed Brandon Webb, for example. Yeah, right. I've been, I, there's no pitcher that's uh, completely um, risk-free. You know, we can look back at a, a lot of the previous lists and the guys who were ranked in the top ten of pitchers then fell completely apart. Lindsay took him a couple of years ago as, you know, one of the best pitchers in baseball and doesn't look to be anymore. So uh, pitchers are certainly risky. But, you know, at the same time, I think we can look at last year's list and see a lot of hitters who have uh, fallen substantially. I mean, Ricky Weeks last year was ranked number nine. He won't be on the list this year. Ryan Zimmerman was 10. He won't be on the list this year. So, um, you know, it's not just pitchers that are risky, but position players have injury issues and performance issues as well. Now, with regard to Weeks or Zimmerman, I, I mean, I guess partially what you're doing is here, right? You're trying to represent their present trade value. Is that right? Correct. So, so I guess in your mind, and you're also suggesting at some level in the minds of, you know, the uh, front offices in the league, that the current uh, 2012 performances, the 12, 2012 performances of Ricky Weeks, for example, uh, of Ryan Zimmerman, those are going to have a, a pretty great effect on their trade value. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who is out there shopping for an upgrade would look at the fact that Ricky Weeks is hitting 185 and be scared away from you know paying significant prices for that kind of uh, you know the, that kind of player. I mean, Weeks is a talented guy who's had good years before, but he's also had injury issues before. Uh, and now he's not hitting. It's, you know, he's been better the last month, but those first couple of months where he was, you know, chasing pitches 10 feet outside, striking out all the time and not hitting for any power, those are kind of scary. So, you know, he's got a decent team-friendly contract. Uh, he's not getting paid an arm and a leg, but, you know, if you're going to go out there and give up, you know, three or four premium prospects with Ricky Weeks or Ryan Zimmerman, the guy you're going to target, I mean, Zimmerman is probably more health-related than, than the new contract he got over the winter, but uh, I think these are guys whose stocks have taken significant steps backwards. Can you, with regard to these, you mentioned that it did seem to be at some level that his approach had changed. Yeah. Can you think of, of players for whom a similar thing has happened? Because Weeks, to the best of my knowledge, has uh, been praised for his approach uh, leading up to this year. Well, I think the thing with Weeks is, you know, he's always been a higher strikeout guy who's walked a lot. He's one of those guys who worked a lot of deep counts. So you were okay with the strikeouts because he was drawing walks. In the early part of the year, uh, he was just chasing pitches that were so ridiculously far outside. I, I know there's a gift going around of him chasing a pitch that looks like it's almost outside the other batter's box. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, he probably just got into a slump uh, and started pressing and doing things that aren't Ricky Weeks-like and swinging at pitches he wouldn't have swung at before. Uh, he was still drawing walks. I mean, it, it, he didn't become a complete all all or nothing Delman Young kind of uh, hack, but he was swinging at so many pitches that he couldn't hit, that his strikeout rate went way up and his power went way down. Um, you know, whether there are other players who've had similar experiences and then and then changed. I mean, we've seen David Wright, you know, a couple years ago, his strikeout rate went way up and he got a lot worse, and now he's bounced back. So I don't think we want to write off Ricky Weeks. But at the same time, you know, David Wright was not as good as he was earlier in his career during that time frame where he went through a, you know, a significant downturn in contact, and it took him a couple of years to get back to what he was. Okay, we talked about... Uh, 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 pitchers, you sort of, uh, I guess, maybe uh, examined, re-examined the way you looked at pitchers uh, when you were composing your 2011 list. Uh, I'm curious if there's any sort of significant change like that, significant change in your approach uh, to the 2012 edition of the list. Yeah, I think there were two. One of them I highlighted in the post is kind of uh, a shift towards more value on production and less on cost efficiency. Um, so, you know, in previous years, uh, you know, I've very heavily weighed uh, a player's overall 
uh, performance to cost ratio essentially. Where if you're a you know a high performer making almost no money, you did very well in this list. Uh, and you know there were some elite players who just made too much money um, and just appeared less than you know what you might think otherwise. And so um, this year I've shifted a little bit to where you know guys who make a lot of money or what looks to be a lot of money, Troy Tolutsky, Ryan Braun, Matt Kemp. Uh, these guys still rank pretty well in the list. Even though they're well-paid, I think what we're seeing is uh, significant salary inflation in baseball, thanks to the TV contracts and some of the new ownership changes, um, to where you know what looks like a, a really huge contract might not look so big in a few months. I mean, Matt Kemp got 8160, and all of a sudden that looks like a bargain. Uh, you know, I, I criticized the Ryan Braun extension when it came out, but now he's under contract for nine more years of $150 million, and when Joey Votto's getting $225 million, uh, Braun looks like a bargain. So... You know, I, I've toned down the penalty I'm giving for guys who are making significant amounts of money. And then the other uh, the other change is probably switching, um, well, switching is maybe the wrong word, moving more towards a, an, an offense-based valuation. Just in talking with the guys in the game, is, you know, we see another year where run production is down and, you know, offense is down across the board. That's really what most teams are looking for right now is guys who can hit. And there's a lot of teams out there shopping for hitters. And, uh, you know, pitching's nice. Uh, defense is nice. These things are valuable, but teams out there right now want bats, and that's what they're going to pay for. Is you know the Giancarlo Stanton's of the world, the guys who might just be straight up hitters and don't provide a ton of other value. These guys are really highly coveted in the game, and so you know uh, Mark Trumbo will be on the list this year, which is you know he's a bat only guy who doesn't draw a lot of walks, but that's his power is, is a rare commodity in this year in this current game, and um, I think I've tried to rectify the list in order to make it match up with what general managers are looking for. You know, uh, this is sort of uh, related. I was at the uh, Brewers-Pirates game on Sunday, and I don't know if it's just an oddity or if it, um, for some reason, if it's um, a product of the 2012 season. There were a number of batters in that game specifically, maybe it has to do also with the composition of those two clubs, uh, who had peculiar relationships between their on-base percentages and their slugging percentages. Between Garrett Jones, uh, Pedro Alvarez, uh, Drew, Drew Sutton, who is playing left field for the Pirates and has done it in a small sample, uh, and then um, uh, you know Corey Hart as well, there were a lot of players who had OBPs uh, very close to 300, which you know is uh, even still uh, in, in a deflated run era or deflated run year uh, is still below average. But then they all had... Uh, between them, uh, slugging percentages of 500, and I don't know if that's uh, if that's somehow that profile is playing better uh, in 2012 than it has in, in recent years, or if that's just a, a product of those two clubs. Well, I think what we're saying is that teams are so starved for power and guys who can hit the ball a long ways that they're more willing to take flawed power hitters than they were in previous years. So you might not have seen. Uh, Garrett Jones get a uh, an opportunity to play when shortstops were hitting 25 home runs a year 10 years ago. But now that nobody's hitting home runs, teams are looking for those kind of guys who can hit the ball over the fence and saying, you know what, he might not walk, he might strike out too much, doesn't hit for average, but he's got pop. And so we're going to put him in the lineup because we don't have anyone else who has any power. So I think it's uh, kind of an expansion of the, the search for power and what teams are willing to accept in this day and age where, you know, not nearly as many players can hit for uh, home runs as used to. Right. Okay, yeah, I was just listening. I noticed. Now, uh, uh, curiously, um, and, and you noted one of the one of the sort of things that works about this trade value series comes out in July. Uh, the trade deadline is, uh, you know, now just about two weeks ahead of us at this point. And uh, 
Um, of course, simultaneous to this, there's been a lot of discussion about um, some players who are set to be free agents and in some cases not. Um, and my guess is they will appear on this list. Um, the most perhaps confusing one to me is a, is a, actually a player who is not going to be a free agent next year. That's Justin Upton. He was fifth in the list last year. He has not had the same sort of offensive production this year as he has in previous years. I'm curious, though. Do you, do you think, A, that Justin Upton, that the talks regarding his uh, availability, uh, do you think they're overblown, or do you think he really is – uh, do you think he really is available, and what would he require uh, in terms of a package coming back? Yeah, I think Upton's almost certainly going to be traded at some point, maybe in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I think the Diamondbacks are serious about just being tired of him. Uh, I think Upton's a guy who, when he's producing, you're happy to put up with the baggage that kind of goes along with Justin Upton. When he's not producing, he's just frustrating. And right now, I think the Diamondbacks are just in that frustrated mode where they're just ready for something else. And, you know, they do have some outfield depth. Obviously, they signed Jason Kubel over the winter, which pushed Gerardo Parra into a backup role. So if they traded Upton, they would just be able to have all three of those start. And they have a couple guys in AAA, uh, albeit being in the PCL, who are hitting pretty well. Uh, Adam Eaton, I think, is hitting like 575 in July, and he's been tearing it up all year. So they've got some guys they can promote. Yeah, I think if they were able to move Upton for pieces that they thought could help them in other positions of weakness, like third base or shortstop, uh, they would probably go ahead and do it, and I think they will end up trading Upton. I do think that, you know, personality is a factor here, and, you know, Upton uh, and his brother are both notoriously uh, challenging to get along with at times, and uh, maybe not every baseball player's uh, cup of tea, you know, like for the, the uh, older white guy who prefers to see the game played in a certain way. Uh, the Upton brothers probably don't match what you're looking for, um, and, you know, I think with Upton struggling with his shoulder issues, and the fact that he's owed $42 million over the next three years, he's not exactly cheap anymore. So, you know, if you're tired of Justin Upton as a person and he's not performing and you have other holes and you have outfield depth, I can see how you'd come to a spot where you're like, trading Justin Upton might be the best thing to do. Now, I, you know, I only pay so much attention to the Diamondbacks. It, to, to the best of my knowledge, though, there have not been any, like, high-profile difficulties with Justin Upton? I mean, you know, he's not committed any crimes. I know that there was recently sort of a run-in or the uh, the owner of the team um, sort of addressed Upton publicly in the media. Um, but I'm curious, is there anything else that, you know, that's there or, or is it just sort of a uh, an accumulation of, of smaller um, disagreements? Yeah, I mean, it's not anything where he's, uh, you know, punched anyone out or uh, had a DUI. But I think Upton's one of these guys who's seen as, you know, a good player who's not a leader. Uh, you know, he's not one of those vocal, rah-rah, um, you know, take the team, put him on his back kind of guys. He reportedly doesn't get along with Kirk Gibson all that well, and Gibson's pretty well respected among ownership and management. Um, and I think with Upton, it, you know, there's questions about his work ethic and, you know, injury history, and he's missed some time on the DL. Maybe the team thought he should have been able to play through or should be able to perform better through. Um, so I don't think it's like one instance where he's, you know, cost them, uh, you know, his reputation. But I think that there are uh, accumulation of issues where they have decided that he's maybe not the kind of guy they want to build a team around. And so, what does it take to get Justin Upton? As you noted, he's not as, um, I guess he's he's not the sort of value that he has been, if for no other reason than his, his 2012 season has not been fantastic. Uh, but what is it required to get him? Is he more? Uh, is he more expensive than, for example, uh, Cole Hamels or Zach Greinke, whom we'll address in, in a moment? 
Yeah, I think Upton's going to probably demand the largest return simply because he does have the years of team control, and he's young. I mean, I think he's 24, 25 years old. So this is a guy that other teams can still see building around with a franchise building block. Uh, I do think with Upton, you know, it's going to be an interesting to see if the D-backs can find a good fit because I don't think they're looking for prospects. They're not necessarily in sell mode. This is a team who, you know, made the playoffs last year, thought they were going to make the playoffs again this year, might have under uh, emphasized how much they were going to regress. But, uh, you know, I think this is a team that wants major league pieces back. They want a third baseman. They want a shortstop. They're almost certainly going to let Steven Drew go after the season. So they're looking for major league-ready infielders. If you're a contender, you probably don't have a major league-ready third baseman or shortstop to trade unless you're the Texas Rangers. So, um, you know, from that standpoint, the Rangers probably make the most sense. But do the Rangers really need another bat? I mean, you know, maybe, I guess. You can argue they can always get better. But I guess there aren't a lot of teams out there that have quality young third basemen or shortstops to trade, and that's really what the Diamondbacks are looking for. So, um, you know, whether they require some kind of three-way trade or, um, you know, they accept some other package of players in return that allows them to turn around and then, you know, go trade for third baseman over the winter. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they end up doing. Uh, but I would expect that Upton will get traded probably for, you know, maybe two or three good young players, no top 50 guys. I, I don't expect any of the premium prospects to, to get moved. But I would expect it to be a package of, you know, a couple of good young players and a, and a prospect or two. Now, you, you mentioned the Rangers. Uh, both owing to the fact that they're competitive and also the fact that they have one of the best farm systems among the league's 30 organizations. They've been involved, their name has been invoked, I should say, in, in a number of rumors concerning both uh, the Phillies left-hander Cole Hamels and, uh, and Brewers right-hander Zach Greinke. Uh, you know, are the Rangers going to end up with someone at the trade deadline? Is it going to be Hamels and Greinke? And if, if that's not the deal that gets done, where do Hamels and Grinky end up? You know, as of uh, you know, what teams are they playing for as of August first? Yeah, I think Texas will land one of those two pitchers. My guess is it's going to be Grinky, not Hamels. Um, I, I think that there's more likelihood that Grinky's going to get traded. I still think there's a chance that Philly, the Phillies, could you know give Hamels the seven one forty or whatever it is that he's looking for, and uh, not end up trading him. Um, but I do think Texas is looking for a frontline starter. You know, they were hoping you Darvish was that guy. You Darvish is not that guy. Darvish is an okay pitcher, but his command problems are, you know, worrying. And I don't think you can count on him giving you a bunch of good starts in the playoffs against good lineups. Um, you know, and Matt Harrison, Colby Lewis, these guys are solid pitchers. Derek Holland, but they're not aces. And so I think Texas wants a, a Granky or a Hamels or a guy like that they can stick at the front of their rotation in October. Um, and, you know, they certainly have the prospect depth in order to do it. You know, with Jerickson Profar and Mike Olt, they've got two premium young position players who don't have obvious spots on the roster. Uh, not that they could, you know, necessarily want to trade both of them, but they could afford to trade either of them or even Elvis Andrus if they decided they just wanted to promote Profar and use Andrus as a trade chip, which would probably be more likely in a Justin Upton deal, I think. But uh, I'd expect Texas to be uh, one of the places that one of the big three lands. Okay, and then, and so do you also expect that um, one from, if not both, Michael and Jerickson Profar might be in another team's organization as of August 1st? Probably old, probably not Profar. It's hard for me to see the Rangers trading Profar, honestly. He's so good. He's so close to the majors. Uh, you know, he's the kind of guy that I just, I think it's really hard to give up on. So, you know, Olt, I think, is a, a really nice prospect. I really like his bat. I saw him in spring training. I'm a big Mike Holt fan, but it's hard to see where he plays on the Rangers. I mean, third base is taken with Adrian Beltre. They could move him to first base, but, you know, the bat might not be quite as special over there. 
they've tried him a little bit in the outfield, but I don't know if that's a, a spot you want to put him on in Texas. So, um, you know, I think Olt's probably a good trade chip for the Rangers and uh, probably a good enough prospect to get any of those three, maybe not by himself, but certainly as part of a package for, for Upton. Or, may, you know, you might even be able to get something else back with Granke if you're giving up Olt for a rental. Okay. Um, now, th- in terms of other names, other other players we might see moving, uh, before the trade deadline here. I've certainly heard uh, Ryan Dempster and Matt Garza's name uh, going around. I'm curious about those guys or any other uh, names of note that might be um, that might be going to, to different uh, teams uh, before the, the deadline here. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a pitching-heavy market right now. I mean, the names are going to be talked about, as we've talked about with Hamels and Cranky and Garza and Dempster. I mean, there's a lot of pitchers out there. Jason Vargas is another pitcher who will probably be traded. Um, there's not as many bats out there. I think Shane McCarino's a guy who will probably get dealt and is maybe uh, a little bit underrated. You know, he's got the kind of skill set that doesn't as sexy as a starting pitcher or, a, you know, a big power-hitting uh, first baseman. But, you know, he's a quality center fielder um, who produces offensively. And, you know, I think Victorino's a guy who could really help a bunch of contenders. Uh, I think in ESPN a couple weeks ago I wrote about it as a fit for the Reds, taking over in left field or allowing them to platoon Drew Stubbs in center. Um, so I think that there's a lot of teams who could use a guy like Shane Victorino. Um, there aren't a lot of good hitters out there. I mean, there's not going to be a you know a huge middle of the order bat changing team. I know there's Carlos Quentin, maybe Josh Willingham, but these guys are more second tier hitters than you know true premium cleanup guys. Now you mentioned bo- both uh, Cole Hamels and Shane Victorino. Uh, of course, that that raises the question of what the Phillies are to do uh, as of as of our recording here. They're 12 games under 500. Uh, 14 games out of, in fact, in last place uh, in the NL East, and um, they're not they're, they're rankings, their standings in the in the wild card, even with the second wild card spot, uh, are not much better. They seem like they're definite contenders to sell in a vacuum, but they of course have invested a lot of money in the present. That was sort of the idea um, with signing Howard, for example, and uh, some other older players, but still with skills. Uh, you, but you, now you've mentioned Hamels and Victorino as possibilities for leaving the team. What is the? I mean, what what do you see as the different scenarios for the Phillies over the next you know two weeks? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm almost 99.9% certain that the uh, Phillies will trade Victorino. He's a, a guy that they're probably not going to resign no matter what, uh, and I think he does have some value to other teams. So uh, whether they were in sell mode or not, I think they'd be looking to trade Shane Victorino. Um, Hamels, I think, is a guy they want to keep, they want to build around, but if he won't take their offer, they're going to have to trade him. I mean, if, you know, there's no point letting him walk and just getting, you know, the uh, the draft picks in return when they can get a probably a better return in a, in a trade. So Hamels is a guy that I think they would like to keep, but will probably have to trade. Petrino is a guy they probably don't mind getting rid of. Uh, I don't think they appreciate quite how good he is, and he was not, you know, necessarily their kind of player. Um, I think overall the Phillies are probably going to be in that uh, light seller category. I don't think they're going to blow it up and trade everybody. They're certainly not going to trade Halliday and Lee and Pavelbon and Chase Utley. Uh, but they're going to sell off the pieces that they're not planning on bringing back next year or, in Hamill's case, might not be able to bring back next year. Uh, so the Phillies are, you know, as you mentioned, they, there may be a light seller. Uh, another team I'm curious about, now last year, right about this time, the Pittsburgh Pirates were, uh, if not um, in first place, then at least near first place in the NL Central. And that was a team that we suspected and, you know, probably ended up being the case, um, was playing over their heads a little bit, or, or at least uh, were producing, uh, I guess, above and beyond what we might consider their true talent level. 
They're just a game out of first place right now in the NL Central. Of course, uh, they also have. Um, uh, they're also in first place in the wild card. I'm curious uh, as to how you see the Pirates now, especially with a uh, with a farm system that's starting to grow up a little bit and um, producing some prospects who are closer to major league readiness. What do you think about the Pirates a year on in a similar spot? in terms of the standings, but maybe in a slightly different position in terms of team composition? Yeah, I mean, last year I think the Pirates, uh, you know, were probably overachieving, but I encouraged them to go for it anyway. And I thought that, you know, getting your fan base back and kind of appealing to the city of Pittsburgh and saying, hey, look, we're going to try when we're in position is worth doing. Uh, and this year I think this team is even better with Andrew McCutcheon having it. MVP season and Neil Walker has been on fire lately and the pitching being better than expected. Um, I just don't think the Pirates are in a position to say, you know what, we're still building for the future. We have a chance at the division. We have a chance at the playoffs, but we're not going to take it. I think, you know, the Pirates fans have responded to the team winning and uh, the Pirates kind of owe it to their fans to take a shot at it. So, you know, if I'm the Pirates, I know I have a good farm system. I know I'm, you know, planning on building for the future, but I don't think you can look at an open door to a playoff spot, especially when you've been this bad for this long, and just pass it up. I think the Pirates have to um, take a shot at it. You know, they're a better team than they were a year ago, a little extra cushion. So, you know, if I'm the Pirates and it cost me Starling Marte in order to go out and make a run, you know, that's a move I have to make. And so I think, you know, Pittsburgh should absolutely be buyers, even if they are playing over their head, even if they aren't quite as good as the Reds or Cardinals. Um, I think they owe it to their city and owe it to their fans in order to make a run and see if they can pull this thing off. Yeah, so ultimately, do you, do you think, uh, I mean, what level prospect do you get rid of for them? I mean, is it is it Garrett Cole, Jameson Tyon, or as you mentioned, is it Starling Marte? I think Marte is probably the starting point. I think with Cole and Tyon, you probably want to hang on to those guys unless you're really blown away. I mean, if you're going after Justin Upton, then you'll maybe be willing to talk about one of those two. But, you know, for a rental or a smaller upgrade, um, you know, if you're adding, adding a guy like Jason Vargas, obviously he's not going to cost, you know, one of those premium guys. He probably won't even cost Sterling Marte. So I think there are upgrades out there they can make uh, that will allow them to stay in the race in the second half and uh, give their team a chance for the playoffs without decimating their farm system. And Marte is a guy, you know, that he's not so good a prospect that you, you're going to um, kill yourself for years if you give him up. He's not Jerickson Profar. He's not Dylan Bundy. Um, so I think, you know, if you put Sterling Marte out there and say, hey, look, I'm willing to make him available for the right upgrade uh, and a move that makes sense for you. I think that's something that the Pirates should consider. Okay, now also as we, uh, you know, sort of begin the march to postseason baseball here uh, and, you know, we sort of have sorted out now the teams that are in contention, the teams that are not, and, you know, there are fewer teams in that middle ground now. Uh, one team, obviously, that, that's in contention and is looking um, like a, dis- you know, distinctly uh, – Favorite, a distinct favorite, I should say, for uh, for playoff baseball is the Washington Nationals. Interesting thing, of course, about the Washington Nationals. Well, I'm sure there are a number of interesting things. One of them is that they have probably uh, the top two, three starters in baseball in Steven Strasburg, uh, but GM Mike Rizzo um, has has also suggested that the team is going to be very careful with Steven Strasburg. And I, I don't know if it's actually something that he said concretely or at least has been inferred from some of his comments, but there is going to be an innings limit placed on Steven Strasburg, one not unlike the one the team placed on Jordan Zimmerman last year. Of course, the Nationals were not in contention last year, and Jordan Zimmerman is not the sort of uh, frontline starter that is Steven Strasburg. How does Mike Rizzo adjust? How do, does David Johnson adjust to the fact that the team is very likely going to be in contention down the stretch, 
uh, is certainly if they make the postseason, they're going to have a couple of short series where a pitcher like Steven Strasburg would be of great benefit to the team in terms of preventing runs. Uh, will they modify their uh, their sort of innings limit with Strasburg, or or will, as Mike Rizzo said, will is it is it a medical decision that is not up for debate? Uh, my guess is what they're going to end up doing is trying to figure out a way in order to have Strasburg available for the postseason, um, but also not make him pitch the entire regular season in order to do so. So if the Nationals, I mean, right now I think there are three games of the Braves, and they've got a pretty comfortable cushion over, uh, you know, the second wild card team, they've got a bit of room to play with in the second half of the year where they don't have to be awesome down the stretch in order to still make the playoffs. The current format certainly suggests that you want to win the division. Um, and so I think that, you know, it makes sense to try and stay out of those wild card playing games if you can. But I think the, the Nationals are in a position where they could acquire, you know, a back end starter who could give them, uh, a chance to, you know, skip a couple Steven Strasburg starts in August and September, can keep him available for October. And, you know, if the team plays well enough to where they have a six, seven, eight game lead in mid, mid September, they could shut him down for the last couple weeks of the year without really jeopardizing their divisional, uh, chances. And I think that's really what they're, their hope is going to be is that they get a large enough cushion in order to skip a few Steven Strasburg starts in the next couple months in order to keep his innings uh, in the regular season down. And then I think, you know, really, once the playoffs get here, they can talk about, you know, medical decisions all they want. If they're in the playoffs and Steven Strasburg's arm is attached to his body, he's going to pitch. And uh, I think that's, you know, they might not make him throw 150 pitches, but he's going to take the hill if he's healthy. And so, you know, I think if they can keep him to 150, 160 regular season innings, and then they can give him 20 or 30 in the postseason, they'll be just fine with that. Now, I've heard uh, zero discussion of it, but I'm curious what is preventing the Nationals from uh, sending Strasburg to, especially if they're able to acquire a starter at the trade deadline, maybe not the top flight type, but you know maybe Ryan Dempster, for example. What is to stop them from putting Strasburg either you know, in a late-inning role or... Uh, um, or, a, or a sort of a long relief role until the playoffs and then inserting it back into the rotation? Well, I think what we've seen is the jerking guy around between the bullpen and the rotation. Uh, you know, we don't know how that affects the guy's arm, and it hasn't always worked out well. I mean, I think what we've seen is, you know, when pitchers have a certain structure and have a, a certain plan and their arm responds to, you know, a few days of rest and then they're having to pitch, you know, on, in a different pattern, uh, it doesn't always go very well. And so... I think they'd be better served just skipping Strasburg a couple times rather than trying to use him as a high leverage reliever or even, you know, just using him as a middle reliever um, in tune-up games. I mean, I think that there's something to that set pattern and that set uh, five-day, you know, this is when I pitch, um, allowing his arm to be on a normal schedule. I'm not sure that that's a a path you want to go where, you know, you work him into one or two inning situations and all of a sudden you have to stretch him back out and, um, I think that they're probably better off just using him as a starter, acquiring another starter in order to take a few of his his starts in the second half of the year, uh, and then you know giving him a couple weeks off here and there, um, and trying to bring him back as a full time starter in the playoffs. Okay, yeah, those are those are good answers. Hey, listen, before you go though, um, before we stop recording, I've recently taken a, a shine to Max Scherzer. I mean, I've always certainly enjoyed Max Scherzer, but uh, it's sort of a number of variables have come together to make mechers are more interesting than ever before, at least to me. Uh, I'm curious, what is what is the deal with Max Scherzer, however? He has uh, one of the best fastballs, at least in terms of velocity, in the majors. Um, and he has also posted some of the best defense-independent numbers. Um, 
especially if you sort of apply some some batted ball concepts to it in terms of uh, home run per fly ball, etc. Uh, and yet he has an ERA that's near five at the moment. Is this just? I mean, it, it seems like Max Scherzer more than other pitchers is kind of subject to these uh, to these sorts of things where he's. Uh, you know, maybe has an ERA higher than than his uh, defense independent numbers, or that he's prone to streaks as well. I mean, there have been some times when uh, he'll look terrible, but then he'll go on like a you know five week stretch where he's invincible. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, I nothing to add to that. I was just waiting to. I just I don't know. I don't understand totally how I feel in my own heart. That's why I'm helping. I need you to help organize these thoughts for me. Well, I mean, it shows a guy with, you know, electric stuff and mediocre command. And I think these guys can have runs where their command is really good and they look like the best pitcher in baseball, but the command is not something that he has proven that he can, you know, harness over a long period of time. Uh, Gio Gonzalez has shown that sometimes these guys can take big steps forward. Uh, you know, even though his command still isn't awesome, and Scherzer looks like, you know, he has the potential to do that if he can figure out how to harness his command over a long period of time. Uh, but I don't think we should be overly surprised that a Tigers pitcher is posting an ERA higher than a SIP, right? I mean, the Tigers' defense well, is atrocious, yeah. uh, and we, we knew that going in. Um, so I think this is kind of, a, you know, a little bit of an expected outcome. And you know, for Scherzer, I mean, he's a smart guy. He looks at a lot of the stuff. He's a one of the pitchers in baseball who's really into pitch effects and some of the secondary stats. I wouldn't be surprised if he looked around at his infield defense and said, "Screw it, I better get strikeouts." So, you know, for sure, the strikeout rate to go up isn't a big surprise. That's a, probably a natural reaction to having to pitch to those guys and uh, play with those teammates. And um, so, I think Scherzer is the kind of guy who, if you took him into a different atmosphere, he might change. And uh, what we're seeing right now is probably a bit of a reaction to the, the context he's put in. Um, but I do think that you know, if he ever does figure out how to throw strikes on a regular basis, he could certainly turn into one of the best pitchers in baseball. Okay. Those are the facts. Uh, Dave Cameron, thank you for analyzing all baseball. That is what I do. Yeah, that's what you do. It's uh, And it's also nice, of course, to have you back in the fold, if for no other reason than uh, now I don't have to do all the scheduling uh, behind the scenes. Right, yeah. Sorry to make you actually have to work. Right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's real rotten. It's real rotten. All right, uh, we'll stick around momentarily, but in the meantime, uh, we'll say thank you to Dave Cameron. That's Ben Dave Cameron. Uh, I'm Carson Stooley, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.